Hello everyone, today is the 14th official day of lockdown here in Spain. You are listening to Marta in 15 days in a podcast. Um, I doubt it's your first time listening, uh, but if it is, welcome on the show. Um, I'll start by reporting some cases uh, from today here in Spain. We have reached 78,000 confirmed cases of coronavirus in our country. Again, this is just an estimate. It's definitely and unfortunately not the real Uh, numbers just because not everyone is getting tested and there isn't just enough material to get everybody tested um, and also some people may be asymptomatic so let's never forget that on top of these almost 80,000 cases in Spain we have 6,600 deaths and regarding a country that as you know I hold very close to my heart which is Italy they're about to reach the 100,000 infections Today, I wanted to speak with somebody very special to me for my last episode with an invited person, with a guest um, in this series of 15 Days in a Podcast. His name is Diego Loyo Rosales, and he's a Venezuelan friend of mine from high school. I had been thinking about it for a while to do an episode um, on the financial economic impact um, of the COVID-19 crisis on the world. Um, and it's something that we've talked a little bit about on some of my episodes, one of my good friends told me and suggested I did an episode on it. So I decided to invite Diego. I am sure you will enjoy our conversation. Um, he's very good at explaining complicated economic and financial concepts. So wherever you are, I hope you're safe. I hope you're healthy. And I sure hope you're staying at home while you're listening to this podcast. Sit down and enjoy. So as promised, today I'm speaking with my good friend, Diego. Diego, do you want to introduce yourself? Yes, hello, Marta. Hi, everybody. My name is Diego Loyo Rosales. I'm originally from Venezuela. I'm currently in Venezuela as well. And, and yeah, uh, I'm here talking with my very good friend, Marta. We <laughs> met in Italy. Of course. We've been traveling the world uh, ever since. Exactly. And... Um, do you want to just give a little overview on your education, just so people know why you are uh, yes. speaking about the yes, topic that you're speaking after, about today? Yes, of course. After after start, uh, studying in Italy with Marta, I went to the University of Chicago to study political science and economics, and and then I did a master in finance in Madrid, Spain, in the Instituto de Estudios Bursátiles, IEB. Yes. Um, so... You know, I've been wanting to talk to you for a variety of reasons. One of them is, as Diego said, he's from Venezuela. And the reason why Venezuela popped to my mind in the beginning of this outbreak is because the first reaction that people had, as many of you know, was going to supermarkets and buying all the toilet paper in the world and also a bunch of other things that they decided to bulk buy. And seeing the images of supermarkets that were almost empty reminded me a lot of pictures and videos I've seen in the past of Venezuela. So I thought of Diego for that. And then I also thought of Diego because he knows, you know, he's somebody that is very outspoken about economics and finance. And I thought it would be very interesting to hold a session where we talk about that aspect of COVID-19. So yes, of course. do you want to tell us a little bit, a little bit of information? Yeah, about? I'll tell you a little bit about Venezuela. So full disclosure, I moved back to Venezuela recently. I've been here for less than three, four months. So it's not like I've been enduring the whole situation throughout. 
Uh, I have been here since the coronavirus outbreak in, in the Wuhan province, so I guess the, there's that. Um, one of the a, a very funny thing that is going on around the internet is that all my friends, so as some of you may know, um, a lot of Venezuelans have emigrated to very dif various different countries. There's a lot of Venezuelans in Spain, of course, and in the United States and Colombia, but there's Venezuelans everywhere, basically. So there's these memes and jokes going around the fact that us Venezuelans have been prepared for something like the Wuhan virus for a long time because we all went through the phases of not having products in the supermarkets right uh, and doing and doing all this kind of things to ensure that we have uh, a little bit of food for ourselves or or for our families right uh, but it, it does tell you a lot about the, the, how hard the the one virus is impacting not only like supermarkets but all kinds of businesses uh, the fact that uh, they're even jokingly, you can draw comparisons to right. uh, uh, economic crisis like the one Venezuela is going through, which is probably one of the worst, if not the worst, yeah, of the 21st century. Right. Um, do you want to, you know, I would hope people listening to this have done a little bit of reading and know of the situation in Venezuela, but it's not uncommon that I find myself having to explain to people often, not only in yes. Spain, but elsewhere, what the situation in Venezuela is. So do you want to give like a very yes. brief overview? Yes, so trying not to get into too much politics, right. but having to do so. Uh, so Venezuela has been under a dictatorship for, in my opinion, the past 20 years. In some other people's opinions, less than that, because it was some sort of mixed dictatorship democracy thing. But basically what the dictatorship has done has followed economically. They, they pursued this very interventionist, very pro-socialist, pro-distributive uh, reforms that uh, not, I'm not talking about what people usually think about socialism nowadays. I'm talking about Soviet Union style or right. style socialism. Uh, and the fact that they, they did all, all these things in, in order to apparently redistribute whatever uh, wealth there was in Venezuela, which was not much to start with. But what they end up doing was uh, destroying all the the industrial and productive apparatus, economic apparatus of the country. Um, and this has been going on, you know, for the past 15, 20 years. And in the past five years, maybe, it, it everything came down crashing. Because Venezuela, as some of you may know, is an oil country. And basically, when the oil barrel was at high prices, at maximum prices, over $100 a barrel, the Venezuelan state could afford to just keep printing money and keep just giving out free stuff uh, for the people, free food, free housing, free everything. And obviously, when the, when the oil price came down, they couldn't afford to do that anymore. So that created huge shortages of basic staples like toilet paper, chicken, milk, meat, uh, and also created a lot of logistical operational issues for the for the companies that used to produce here in Venezuela. So we used to have a huge industry of rice, for example, of coffee as well, and it all went down the drain after all these policies were enacted by the government. 
Right. Um, and it's true what you were saying in the beginning, that in the past five years, I've met more Venezuelans than in my entire life. Just pretty much anywhere I've gone, whether it's been Spain, France, there's so many Venezuelans in France, uh, even when I was in Argentina this summer. Yeah. Um, so what is the situation with the COVID-19 in Venezuela? I know you guys, you are self-isolating, but what is it like at a national yes, point? Yeah, I, I've been self-isolating from before it was uh, mandated because, well, basically because I kind of realized that this was going to go, this was going to do very bad things worldwide. But in Venezuela, uh, one of the industries that has been impacted is the health industry as well right and so it, it's even, it's even riskier for people to get sick here in venezuela and when i mean sick i don't mean only with the wuhan virus i mean with any sort of sickness even a normal cold could be life-threatening under the under certain circumstances and definitely the health system here in venezuela has collapsed and long before the wuhan virus arrived right so and basically the, we are way behind in terms of timing uh, compared to Spain or Italy, for example. Um, but the problem, the other problem with the system and the dictatorship in Venezuela is that you cannot really trust the data that they give you. Right. So officially there's less than 200 cases of coronavirus, uh, but uh, the, the fact that there are officially less than 200 cases doesn't mean that there are actually only 200 people uh, infected in Venezuela. There's, um, they, they haven't been doing the tests actually pretty well. And I don't think there are that many tests. I'm actually not an expert in the, in, in the situation, in the health situation, but I'm, I've spoken to a couple of people uh, and a couple of doctors that are friends of mine, and they say, look, we don't have the the means to carry the test as much as we would want to, right? So um, the World Health Organization said that the peak of infection in Venezuela is steamed to be at around one, one and a half months away. Wow. So, so yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get much worse probably here. Uh, Hence, why I'm self-isolating. Right. Uh, not, now it's mandatory to isolate. Everything is closed, and there's police on the street closing all the main avenues and telling people to go back home. But but yeah, that happened last week. Um, so yeah, we're a, we're a little bit behind, and I'm honestly scared. Not of myself or my family, because at the end of the day, we live in Caracas, in the capital city, which is some sort of hidden oasis compared to what a lot of people are going through in more remote places in Venezuela. Right. It can get really out of hand. Right, right. Um, so, you know, as you said, you studied political science and economics, and I wanted to ask you things that I've already been talking about during my episodes, but one of them I think yes. you'll have a different perce perspective on um, is the following. Yes. How is... COVID-19 going to affect, in your opinion, the marketplace, um, and especially for recent graduates and soon-to-be graduates? Yeah, so uh, obviously um, what the Wuhan virus is doing is that the, the whole economic apparatus is having to slow down. And the problem with the economic apparatus slows down is that obviously hiring goes down as well. So uh, 
I'm, I'm going through a bunch of processes of myself, so I've been living going through this personally. Um, thing, you know, interviews, um, things that are going to usually happen once or processes happen in one or two week time are going to go much longer now. You're, uh, because people are just starting to realize that they're going to change their practices on how to hire new, new people. Right. And unfortunately, obviously, there's going to be less uh, hiring uh, open positions as well. Right. Um, as um, the economic outlook is not that good anymore. Uh, first, first, I want to apologize to everybody. One of the issues about being in Venezuela is that the internet usually goes up and down. Uh, unexpectedly, so uh, it might get disconnected. Hopefully, it won't get disconnected again. But what I was saying about the the marketplace, so especially for recent graduates, at the end of the day, the, the economic uh, the economies of the countries keep going on. So there are going to be open positions, but there's probably going to have to a lot of people are going to have to do more job hunting. And, and the bad news is that there's going to be less open positions uh, than they were expected to be. So there are definitely some industries that are going to be more impacted than others, but overall, uh, it's going to be a little bit harder to get a job as a recent graduate or as a soon-to-be graduate. Right. Uh, on, the plus side, on the plus side, though, and this is uh, me trying to be an optimist, mm-hmm. all the situation going on with the one virus has made a lot of industries rethink the way they do business and the way they they are able to uh, function even when they do not have a physical workplace where people go to. So I, I do think that this is going to help a lot of uh, companies to start enacting a lot of digital measures that are going to keep going on even after the one virus crisis is solved. So I think that we're going to find a move towards more international and like uh, remote connected yeah. job positions. So you're going to be able to find uh, companies hiring for you, hiring you to work remotely. And that's always good because it gives you better opportunities to find a job instead of just in the city you're living in. And I think anyway, like, I think that's a very interesting point that you're raising. And it's something that I had already thought would have been the sort of next normal yes. thing to do in this world we live on today. Like so many jobs, I know so many people working remotely, I could have only expected for the situation to continue. And I imagine now it may be even more accelerated. Yeah, that, that, that's the thing, right? Uh, we were already moving towards it. And a lot of industries, a lot of companies have been implementing this. Uh, we both know have common friends that are working right. remotely from their homes or even having they created startups that a couple of years ago were unimaginable. Actually, another UWC here, a friend of mine, is creating a startup on virtual reality, something that didn't even exist right. as an industry a couple of years ago, right? So there, there, there are some opportunities. And the, the good thing about crisis, like the one with the Wuhan virus, is that uh, they make even very establishment, very obsolete companies rethink and innovate the way they do things, right? So if before we were moving a very slow, progressive movement towards this type of remote working and interconnection between uh, companies, and now because they've been forced to, even the biggest firms in the world have been 
trying to connect, you know, their CEOs or their uh, workers from home. Uh, exactly. I think that there are going to be a lot of opportunity, a lot of new opportunities coming up. Right. And I so think for that, for those we yeah. are particularly skilled, like younger people, right? Not everybody, I don't want to generalize, but yes. for the most part, younger people, I think, are better equipped to adapt to a remote sort of work environment. Um, so, yeah, yes. I like that, yes. you know, um, I like that you said that it, it, it's like a good thing that could come out of it. So, Diego, you were talking about some industries before and I was just wondering how do you think industries like the tourism industry here in Spain or Italy are going to be impacted by the virus outbreak? Right, so tourism, airlines, everything that ha that is related to travel and is going to be heavily impacted has been heavily impacted already. Um, the, the thing about uh, this sort of crisis is that it erodes the trust people have on normal things like basically an airline or an hotel chain and people that were planning to go on holidays to Italy, Spain or basically anywhere in the world are just canceling their trips and that's going to have a very very strong impact so it's going to be hard for tour it's going to be hard year for tourism and for countries that are reliant on tourism it's going to be a very very hard year Uh, even after the Wuhan virus situation is, uh, is solved or even if we go uh, and we start rebuilding after the crisis, it's going to be really tough for, for tourism. And, and there's, there's, all, there's all sorts of companies and industries that are being affected, uh, anything related to oil. So oil is a huge way of seeing what the world right. is doing basically when the world is growing the the price of oil goes up because there's more demand for energy and vice versa and oil is going all the way down it's it's in historic low figures and there's people that think that it's going to be get cheaper and cheaper so that's not only because of some situation that is going on with the Saudi Arabians and, and Russian industries trying to lower their own prices to get some of uh, market share. It's also because the world is just not producing as much. And, and when world economies don't produce as much, they don't need that much energy and oil prices go down. So anything related to oil, especially in the United States, is going to get really, it's going to get impacted really hard. And yeah, there, there, it, there is going all around though. One, one of the, the the Wuhan virus situation has created uh, an issue that that was already brewing. It, the, the crisis, the economic crisis, was already brewing before the Wuhan virus even uh, existed, and um, and therefore it's just exposing all these vulnerabilities that were already there in the system, already there in a lot of these industries. Uh, I, I like to use a, a metaphor to explain what the Wuhan virus is causing the economy. And the, the Wuhan virus was basically a spark that got lit inside a room full of gunpowder and dynamite. So the gunpowder and the dynamite was already inside the room. And the Wuhan virus just became a bonfire that made everything start shaking down and, and explode. Or right. implode, I should say. 
and you've been referring to the virus and everything, the situation surrounding it as a crisis. So, first of all, do you think it is a crisis? And second, how is it different to the crisis many of us went through in 2008? Right. So, uh, I do think, it, I mean, the Wuhan, the Wuhan virus in itself is a crisis, right? Uh, it's a health crisis. It's a a uh, situation that none of the people living today have been going through. Well, most uh, of us, maybe some people were around when the when the Spanish flu was going on at the beginning of right. the 20th century, but most of us have never been through such a thing. So just in of itself, the one virus is a crisis. The economic situation, uh, if you read the newspaper nowadays, the probabilities of a recession in every single developed country in the world is has gone through the roof. Uh, so it's, I, I would say, it's not only a crisis in of itself, it's actually the start of, unfortunately, a very ugly word in economics, which is a recession. Um, yeah. And, but to, to go back to my point, the, the, this is not to say that the Wuhan virus created this recession. It obviously makes it worse. It obviously makes it has a negative impact on what was already uh, a, a bad situation. Uh, there is one thing that a lot of people in finance use to determine when, or well, try to use to determine when we're close to a recession, which is the yield curve. Right. Uh, not to get too technical, the yield curve basically is the interest rate that government bonds have overalls. So you have bonds for one year, two years, five years, ten years, and usually, the longer the the year the yield, the longer the yield, the lower the interest rate. So the one-year bonds usually have a higher a, a, a lower interest rate than the ten-year bond. A higher, sorry, I confused lower and higher. So just to make sure, uh, I don't confuse the terms anymore. So. The lower the period of the bond, the lower the interest rate, usually. Uh, a lower interest rate means that there's more demand for the bond. So so 10-year bonds usually have a higher percentage of interest rate than one-year bonds. Uh, what we do in finance is that we try to figure out what the curve is doing in order to focus our investments. And it's a very strong signal. What the yield curve is doing is a very strong signal for finance people to know what the market is doing and what the economy is doing. And in the United States, all 11 of the last 11 recessions, all 11 have had an inverted yield curve, which is when shorter period bonds have a higher interest rate than longer period bonds. And basically, that's just a small signal of the many signals that you can see where that uh, some sort of recession is brewing and some sort of economic downturn is going on. We had uh, inverted yield curves in August of 2019 and again in February of 2020. All of this to say that even though the Wuhan virus has exacerbated the crisis and made it worse than probably would have been without the one virus uh, the the economic the economic recession was already starting to show in all this data 
and there's a lot of financiers and a lot of econo economists uh, that are actually have been talking about uh, ongoing or a brewing recession for a long time. Uh, one of my uh, uh, professors at EAB and a Spanish economist called Daniel Lacalle has been talking about the, this for the past five years. Uh, warning signs have been there and, and yeah, the, what the Wuhan virus created is a supply crisis and, uh, and the problem is that the dip to go to the back to your question about the 2008 the 2008 situation was a demand crisis in what sense in the sense that people were starting to the to not pay their mortgages the economics were going down and people didn't have enough purchasing power capacity uh, people and by people i mean people firms small and medium enterprises started to see that they didn't have as much revenue as they used to have and that created an imbalance with the credit that was already outside in the market so basically this is uh, this is a different type of crisis because this is not a demand side this is not a consumption crisis like the origins of the 2008 financial crisis but a supply side where businesses even though wanted to keep open businesses had to shut down and it's not that people are not were not demanding the products people basically just didn't have access to them anymore because whole industries and logistical operations and logistical chains just shut down from the moment that china got impacted with the wuhan virus speaking about industries we've already mentioned a little bit the tourism industry and such are there any industries, any sort of businesses that are better equipped to deal with what's happening right now? I'm going to be honest with you, Marta. Uh, I, I don't know if there's any particular industry that is better equipped to serve the crisis. I don't, I'm not certain if there are uh, industries that are going to benefit from it at all. Perhaps the healthcare system will strengthen itself, uh, but then again, the the healthcare systems in each of the countries are different. So some of them are going to be strained to the to the breaking point, and some are going to get uh, strengthened by the crisis. But overall, I I just think that uh, most industries are going to be impacted by the economic recession the moment that people stop consuming and that's what's happening right now uh the, the moment people stop uh requiring services even require entertainment but uh, all other uh, kind of consumption in their lives uh industries feel that and and there are perhaps inside of each industry, there are perhaps firms that are better adapted for the, the crisis and are going to be going to have the upper hand after the crisis, the one uh, virus is solved. Uh, obviously, anything that is digital and remote, uh, we were I was talking in, with some friends about the fact that Netflix is probably uh, and all these sort of stream firms are probably having a lot of in search of new uh, customers and new clients in this time of quarantine so but overall um i cannot say for sure if there's a specific industry that's going to benefit 
from from crisis or is better equipped to deal with the crisis. Anything that is related to tourism, oil, or any very heavy consumption correlated industry is definitely going to get impacted worse than others, though. Okay, so what can governments do or what are some examples of things that governments are doing right now that are working uh, out for the situation? And what are some other things that aren't working out so much or that, in your opinion, are not as positive? Yes, so the, the governments, to, to know what the governments are doing right now, we need to understand a little bit of what they did in 2008. So in 2008, like I tried to explain before, sorry if I was confusing, uh, we had a demand side crisis. Why? Because people just basically were buying less. Uh, it, it was uh, the, the last straw was the, the real estate bubble, but the real estate bubble was basically a consequence of policies that were enacted in order to favor mortgages and credits for housing um, and those those policies were needed a strong consumption from basically the citizens and the moment that the citizens started to have less money to pay the mortgages and the mortgages started to go to fail uh, the whole crisis erupted And what the governments did in 2008, especially in the United States and the European Union, was demand-side policies, uh, what we call expansionary policies, to increase liquidity through the financial system. Basically, they were injecting money through the banks and through the financial system in order for the people to be able to continue consumption and to reactivate certain industries, uh, especially the housing industries, but basically any consumption side industry needed people just spending their money. And when in times of crisis, people tend to save their money instead of spending it. So what the government did, the governments did was to reduce the interest rates, which makes it easier to get credits, which therefore makes it easier for people to spend. And that happens on firms on the company side as well. The lower the interest rates and the more liquidity there is in the system, the more that the companies can spend and can create an expansionary turn of the economy. Basically, the solution to the crisis in 2008 is the beginning of the problem with the current economic crisis that we're going through. Because the even even though those policies may have helped to go to get over the 2008 crisis those policies also created the very shaky ground in which we stand right now which was a, a situation where very low interest rates and high levels of liquidity injected through central banks is made the incentives strong for companies to just continue spending and purchasing and not worrying about certain risks that they were taking. When interests are low, and in some countries uh, we've had close to negative or even negative interest for the past 10 years, uh, investors and overall the whole economy takes higher risks than when interest rates are higher and people are incentivized to save. 
So we've had 10 years, over 10 years of an expansionary policy with lower interest rates that were required that created a very shaky situation in the market. Now, don't get me wrong, this also created a very positive situation for market valuations. And that's why uh, in places like the United States, we've had market heights as recently as February. But the constant injection of liquidity, and I'm talking about billions of dollars a week and nowadays trillions of dollars a week, has created a situation where those valuations do not necessarily reflect what the economy is doing. So all these injections are basically like steroids and steroids do not create muscle in the economy. Um, what are what the governments are doing right now is basically a repeat of what they were trying to do in 2008. And th that's definitely not going to work as well because on top of the demand side policies, we should get some supplies situations and supply side policies are really hard to enact through central banks and through injections of liquidity. Uh, the, the economic crisis are really hard to predict. Um, the governments were not fully prepared to take the measures that they needed to take in this moment. And some industries are just going to suffer, and the pro the problem with that is that a lot of people are going to demand more government intervention in these industries. The airlines, for example, have been requesting a bailout from the government in the United States. And in times of economic downturn, unfortunately, you need to allow for certain firms that have not been doing well to fail in order for the economic market overall to strengthen once the economic downturn is uh, is over. So I, I think that unfortunately the central banks of the world and the governments of the world didn't learn the lessons that we needed to learn from 2008. Um, they are repeating the same expansionary policies that allowed them to save face during the, during the 2008 crisis, but this time I don't see them going that well. Okay, and also I wanted to ask you, in another episode with our friend Camila from Mexico, we were talking about countries like Mexico itself and many other countries, not only in Latin America, but in other regions of the world that relied heavily on an informal industry, right? So, and by that I mean industries that are not reported and that don't appear in the books so often. So talk about markets, talk about people working on the streets that, and usually very commonly, those very people depend heavily on the income they get from that activity they are doing to be self-sufficient. So how is this going to impact them? Yeah, so everything we've been discussing uh, so far has been mostly focused on the developed world. The developing world is going to have a huge problem, which is not only are they going to have to face the economic recession that it's going through, but also they're going to have to face the fact that most of the investments during an economic recession are going to go to developed countries. 
because in moments of crisis you want your money to be safe and unfortunately emerging markets and developing countries are not as uh, as safe as they could be or they should be in order to attract invest investment uh all of this to say that developing countries are gonna get uh probably a longer uh, economic recession than the developed countries like it happened in 2008 and it's probably going to happen uh, this time around and in that is the worst news of all is for everyone who works in those hidden economies because most of the hidden economy is consumption most of the hidden economy is tourism bars or uh, are artisanal products handmade products uh that uh, Camila was talking about 30% of the country to, uh, working in informal businesses. And those informal businesses uh, are going to be, they, they're going to react better to, to the crisis, but react better doesn't mean that they're going to be able to continue having as many job positions as they have right now. So they, those businesses are freer to react to the crisis which means firing people or producing less and the the, the big example is uh, in the developed world i guess is your country martha with spain having so much of the what they call the submerged economy and uh, all this submerged economy is basically a way of people not to be able to do the jobs that with the pressures of taxes they wouldn't be able to do and in moments of crisis these type of jobs are usually the first ones to go they are very linked to to tourism they are very linked to handmade products and those are usually the the industries that do worse during the crisis especially a crisis like the Wuhan virus that we're going through and the economic recession that we're starting to see in the developed world. So, uh, and the worst of all of this is that because they are informal jobs uh, and informal positions, obviously they don't have the safety net that some countries have for all the rest of the population, all the rest of the formal jobs. So there are not going to be severance packages. There's not going to be uh, any sort of soft landing for these people. It's a really tough situation. But uh, the good thing about market dynamics is that the freer you are to react, uh, the easier it is for you to find all different avenues and different resources to grow economically. So I also think that the informal structures, the informal jobs are going to be the ones that are gonna appear much faster after the this whole Wuhan virus crisis goes through because there's gonna be a lot of people trying to create new jobs there's gonna be a lot of people trying to create new enterprises and it, they're gonna they're gonna have to look for ways of making their enterprises profitable in the short term in places like Mexico in places like Venezuela there, there's going to be a lot of people trying to make a quick buck, like the Americans say, and there's going to be a lot of job opportunities. So in the short term, it's a very negative uh, view, negative situation. 
but in the medium to long term, I think that uh, the informal industries are going to do much better. And that's actually a lesson that some governments maybe should have. I read the other day that the Spanish government was trying to make it uh, to ban any sort of firing, any sort of layoffs. And I think that is the wrong response. They're trying to save uh, the jobs of the people, of course, but they're not seeing the impact that these sort of draconian responses have on the firms and the enterprises. So there's going to be a lot of mom and pop shops that are going to close and that creates unemployment and that creates a a harder situation, a harder context in which they kind of can recover. So I I think that in in terms of hardship, you need to buckle up, uh, allow the allow the economic uh, forces to go through, allow the people to that are trying to keep a, a firm, a, a small and medium enterprise uh, to have the freedom to maintain those enterprises. If you can lower taxes for them, that's the best solution. Uh, that's what they're trying to do in places like the United States. Uh, but the, at the end of the day, any economic recession is going to have an uh, increase in unemployment. Any economic recession is going to have a, uh, an increase in defaults, and uh, some some enterprises are going to close, are going to shut down. And if you try to stop that, you're just going to make uh, the situation even worse. So what you need to do is create the proper environment for for us to see light at the end of the tunnel. And I think that the the best thing, the, the best policies that governments can do, both for the formal and the informal jobs, is actually allow the economy to reactivate by itself and not try to force start the economy through demand uh, side policies and through protectionism that is just not going to be good in the medium to long term. All right, so the last question that I think I have for today is how do you think non-investors or more casual investors can be impacted by this? And what can they do to protect, to protect themselves or to limit the negative impact that this may have on their financial situation? Well, let me start by saying that none of this is to be taken as financial advice. Uh, the markets currently are going through a very, very dangerous time. If you've been following the financial news, you'll know that stock markets are have been going down for the past months. Uh, in fact, a couple of weeks ago, we had the worst four-week period in the history of, uh, of the S&P 500, which is the United States market. Um, that said, that's there's a lot of opportunities that come from such a drastic change in valuations. Right now, the most of the companies are valuated at levels similar to 2016, which means that the gains of the past three years have been eroded. Um, and this is a 
this is an important lesson for anybody who wants to become an investor or anybody who wants to start in uh, saving for their future, which is that you need to prepare for certain risks and to be certain of the risks that you're taking the moment you start investing in the market. And I don't think the, mar the, the stock market has bottomed out just yet. I think that we're going to see uh, a couple of weeks of go of down of bear markets of, you know, of valuations still going down uh, and followed by a lot of months of uncertainty like in any economic crisis and and this is definitely very dangerous to blindly enter the market at this point which is what a lot of people did in the past four, five, six years with very, very stable um, progressive increases of the market valuation. Uh, this is not going to continue for the rest of the year, but there, you should definitely be very cautious at the moment of deciding any sort of investment. And priority number one is to have a cash flow secure for the upcoming months. But I... Again, this is not any sort of financial advice or investment advice, but I do think that uh, a bear market like the one we're going to have uh, in the following months, it's a very good opportunity to to research and learn uh, about the different vehicles through which you can invest. And at the end of the day, any sort of investment, especially for non-investors or casual investors it's basically a way of saving your money and securing a financial future and in moments of uncertainty and high volatility like right now that future may be impacted by the crisis of the moment so be very cautious do not buy into the narrative that certain uh, mainstream me pundits are saying that right now valuations are cheap and therefore you should buy do a very deep uh, due diligence and research before deciding if you want to enter the stock market and invest in the stock market and the best thing you can do is wait it out and learn and make a decision once things are less volatile and more calm uh, that being said this is going to be a very interesting time, both for people in the stock market and people that uh, do not care or are not considering uh, to enter the stock market, because like we've been discussing throughout this podcast, uh, the uncertainty of the Wuhan virus situation and the uncertainty of the economic recession uh, is going to make it very difficult for businesses to continue to do the their business as they were doing before and but from those difficulties i think a lot of opportunities are going to come um hopefully we'll be able to weather it out and and see the light at the end of the tunnel no marta thank you for the invitation i think that this is a fantastic podcast I, I must congratulate you on on this idea of how to spend your quarantine um, i'm glad that i was able to be part of it thank you thank you diego for all your insight everything you've shared with us today um i think you know it's we've talked about it with mostly everybody that has come on this show 
it's quite an overwhelming time and we get so much information. Sometimes we feel overwhelmed by that. Um, and it's hard to interpret everything we read. So I'm sure everybody has a better idea after listening to you explain it um, about the economic financial situation and what we can expect for the future. Uh, I apologize for the internet inconveniences. Uh, I wanted this to be more of a conversation. Unfortunately, it wasn't to be so. Hopefully, next time we we do this, it'll be I'll, I'll be able to secure a better connection and we'll be able to discuss things better. Uh, to everybody listening, thank you for being with us. Uh, sorry if I wasn't unclear or unintelligible at any point. And um, hopefully, there's something that you get out of this. Uh, whatever it is. <laughs> Anyways, take, take care, everybody. Be very safe. Um, have a really nice day. Thank you very much, Diego. I hope you and your family continue to stay safe. Um, and for everybody else listening, please come back for the very final episode tomorrow from 15 Days in a Podcast. <laughs>